our kids out so it'd be easier to stand up so the kids can get out and then we'll remain standing for the reading of Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.21 is where we'll begin our reading. To give us some context, I'm just going to read a couple verses preceding it. We've previously charged both Jew and Gentile, they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, there's no not one. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law, and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, But by the law of faith, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jew only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we established the law. Father, help us today to tremble at your word. Help us to fall down and cry out, as that song said, you are a holy God. How can people who are without any righteousness, whose mouths are stopped, who are guilty before you, and by our own deeds do nothing but to bring condemnation on our own helpless state, how can we be right with God? How can we be right? How can we have a relationship with this holy God? And thank you, Lord, for this passage this morning. It is the heart of the book of Romans. And Lord, it is your heart pleading with our hearts to be reconciled to God. Jesus, you are our redemption. It is through your blood. It is by your grace. And it's to demonstrate your complete justice, your complete righteousness, 
that God, we as sinners can be just. And God, as a God who looks at us, you can also justify us and you can remain just because of the substitutionary death of Jesus. And Father, today it pleads with us, it beckons us to bow our knee in humble submission before you. There's no boasting, there's no pride. God, may it only be hearts that are overflowing with joy and thanksgiving, knowing that, God, that there is no distinction with you, there's no partiality, there's no receiving gifts or bribes at that judgment seat. God, you look upon us as if we were clothed in the righteousness of your Son. And, God, we thank you for your holy law. We thank you that it's been established, that it has to be only through faith because it takes away all of our effort, it takes all our striving away, and it also gives us absolute confidence that we are your elect people, because it's not based on what we have done, it's based solely on grace. And so God, today we fall down, we cry out, thank you, holy God, for making us accepted in the beloved. Thank you, God, that, that one day when we stand before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, God, that our sin has been already judged at the cross. Father, I pray today that this will motivate us to live holy lives, to live thankful lives, and also, God, that you will just stir in our hearts to take this message the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus has got a wonderful life, but God, people have a messed up life. They have a sinful life. They have a debauched life. They have a life of unrighteousness, ungodliness. And in spite of all of that, God, you have a plan that is so simple, so perfect. It is flawless. And all we have to do is call on Jesus. What a wonderful message that we have. It is good news. So God, embolden us today. God, we pray for that in, in the name of Jesus. As the church at Acts, they prayed, that God, that you would open doors and God, that you would give them boldness. And the place that they were praying, God, you literally physically shook that building and they went out and they spoke your word with boldness. God, I pray that the walls of this little building wouldn't be able to contain the people in the next year who are coming to faith in Christ, not because they're impressed with anything that we do here, but because they are impressed with the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this for your honor and for your glory, that, God, your word would run swiftly and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. This is a, a simple passage, but that doesn't mean it's not profound, that it's not deep. This passage uses a cognate of the word justice or righteousness eight times in these few verses. That's definitely the theme of this passage. Uh, another theme is, is, is the question that Job asked some 4,000 years ago, and that is how can a man be right with God? This, this passage is, is rich with, with prepositional phrases. Uh, hopefully you saw that as we were reading it, that it's just one sentence that's just linked by preposition after preposition. And uh, to try to, to understand the mind of, of the Holy Spirit as Paul was writing this, 
it's imperative that, that we go back to verse 18 of chapter 1, that the righteousness and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. And to see the righteousness that God is calling for you and I to have, and it's the righteousness that that's only found in Christ. And this this is a message that 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 every believer understands. And we say, well, yeah, we just sort of take this for granted. And I hope today that we won't take it for granted. I hope today that we'll understand the depth of salvation. There's there's theological terms that need to be defined in this passage to really appreciate our salvation. One, the, the word justification. What does that mean? What does the word righteousness mean? What does the word redemption biblically mean? What does the word grace as it's used in the Bible? What does propitiation mean? So even though this is familiar phraseology for most believers, and if you're even a young Christian, you know that you've been saved by God's grace. You know that it's not by any works that you've done. But to understand it fully and to appreciate it more, um, Job asked this question 4,000 years ago. <laughs> what, what can a man do to be right with God. His, his three friends, man, what a, what a bunch of buddies, huh? <laughs> they come and they sit there and look at you and then just start pointing the finger at you and saying, Job, your problems are all because you're not living right. I mean, they were health and prosperity theology, weren't they? You know, if you were just living right with God, you'd have all the things that you needed and all the blessings. And you just look at what God does for all those who are godly people. They are blessed. They're exempt from any problems. And, and Job's answer, uh, he says, you know, you're not teaching me anything that I don't already know, that God doesn't listen to the, the sinner, the wicked. And I know that God does take care of the righteous. But then Job asks this question. He says, God, I know all the things that my friends are saying, but, but how, how can a man be right with God? How can a man be right with God? The age-old question, it's haunted mankind really ever since the garden, how can I be right with a holy, righteous God? Many of the New Testament writers um, record similar questions of Job. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and his, his question was, what good thing should I do in order to inherit eternal life? Notice his question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he calls Jesus good teacher. And he's got some basic assumptions that are wrong. And it's what can I do? What must I do? In John chapter 6, they came to Jesus and they said, what works must I do in order to work the works of God? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives this incredible sermon on Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross for our sin. They were moved with guilt and they said, Peter, what are we supposed to do? In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer listens to Paul and Silas singing worship and praise and giving thanks to God as they were being beaten. They were in stocks and the earthquake happens. And his question, sirs, what must I do? What must I do in order to be saved? So Job has asked this question, 
the writers of the New Testament record that question, and I think it's a question that mankind is asking all the time, even though they don't realize it, because they are declaring there is something empty in their life. There is something that they are just craving for. There must be more to life than just four score and ten, or four score if I'm lucky and I get out of here in 80 years, and I've amassed my own little empire. And it all is going to crumble. Johnny Cash, in his later years, I think, really came to know Christ in a living way. And he had one of his songs, and he called it his empire of dirt. Because that's all it is. It is just going to all fade away. It's going to be gone. And so there's this beckoning in every soul. What must I do? What do I need to know about eternal life and things that are that are beyond the physical. There is no other great, no greater question than the one that is set forth this, forth today in this passage. And the answer is God's plan for righteousness is just the opposite of what man-made religion tells you. It is just the opposite. It is by faith, and therefore it excludes all boasting. This passage, as I said, has some real key terms that we must must understand and we'll define those terms. To appreciate salvation, several of them are righteousness, redemption, grace, propitiation. And I said before, we're going to look at how all these prepositions link together and syntactically how they're modifying and giving reasons and giving the means by which things are accomplished. There's also eight prepositions that are affixed or compounded to other words in this passage. And so it is a deep passage. So how can a man be right with God? So our point number one is because righteousness by any other means is impossible. And Paul has given three chapters to lay out for every one of us. And I think this is a clue on how we should do evangelism. I think we need to spend a lot more time helping people understand how lost they are instead of telling them God has a wonderful plan for your life and he wants you to go to heaven. Now that's true. God does have a wonderful plan. But that wonderful plan includes suffering, persecution, people hating you, separation in your own family, division, people scoffing you. That's God's wonderful plan. Now, do you want that? Oh, no, no, thank you. Well, let me tell you how lost you are. And then maybe you'll be more interested in God's wonderful plan. So Paul starts out in Romans 1, 18 to the end of that chapter, telling mankind that you have been suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Every single human being is without any excuse before God. Mankind has traded the truth of God for a lie. He's exchanged God's goodness to worship idolatry. And mankind knows intuitively when he has been wronged and he judges others. And so by that same judgment, all we are doing is condemning ourselves. And in chapter 2, Paul explains how just God's judgment is. God is going to judge us by our deeds. God is going to judge us by our conscience. And God is going to judge us by the secrets of our heart. 
I don't want to stand before God and have him go through all of my deeds. I don't want God to look at my conscience and say, you knew that this was wrong and you chose to do it anyway. You knew this was right and you chose not to do what was right. That's your conscience. And God's going to look down in our secrets. And then in chapter 3, he says, look at the law. Try to live up to the law and there's none righteous. There is none seeking God. There's none who does good. Our mouths are an open sewer. The poison of asp is under our tongues. What comes out of our mouth will condemn us one day. Jesus said, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And so we are in a difficult situation without Jesus. And so three chapters, Paul prepares them for this paragraph, that our only hope is righteousness through faith. It's regardless of when or who we are, righteousness has always been by faith. This isn't some new plan that God came up with. This plan was for the foundation of the world that we would be justified by faith in God's elect chosen servant, Jesus. That's been his plan all along. So Paul starts out with sort of a paradoxical statement here. The righteousness of God has been revealed. It's translated as a present tense, but literally it's a perfect tense. It has been revealed in the Old Testament. It's going to continue to be revealed, and it's always going to be through faith. That's the idea of the perfect tense. It's a past tense that has always been, and it always will be for now in the present and now in the, and then in the future. And the paradox is that God's righteousness apart from the law, is being revealed in the law. And so it's sort of this paradoxical idea. How in the world can the law testify or bear witness to God's righteousness that it's apart from the law? And so Paul wants to explain that. It's always been that way. It's never been anything else. So before we get into the text, I I first want to define the word righteousness. So as as I said earlier, it's it's used seven times, eight times, sorry, in this this passage. It's the Greek word diakosune, which means righteousness, but the verb form is the exact same root, and the participle is the exact same root, and it's translated a little bit differently. It's to be being justified, and it's the same Greek word as righteousness. So a form of that is used eight times in this passage. So we really need to understand what righteousness is. What it is not, righteousness is not infusing believers with moral excellence and behavior. You look at our lives, and you look at Paul's letter, and you know that to be declared righteous does not mean that God has infused us or or somehow just uh, given us this, this special anointing to live an excellent moral life. Now, the result of righteousness will be an excellent moral life, but it's a process of sanctification. So that's not what righteousness is. It is not that God views or treats sinners as if they had never sinned and that your past is not important. That's not what righteousness is. That would be sort of a fiction, declaring somebody who's never been righteous now is righteous, or it'd be a sleight-of-hand trick. It's a Hebraic expression. 
first of all. And the writer of this is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so he's using the Old Testament definition for righteousness. And in the Hebrew, there's a stem of the verb that means to cause or to make something or to declare it as if it were clear of judgment. That's what it means to be righteous. God looks at you and he acquits us. He clears us of all wrongdoing. This distinction means nothing about our ethical goodness or our virtue. It means that we have been declared free from all guilt. Justification is God's activity on the behalf of guilty sinners whereby God goes forth in power to forgive and to deliver them from any judgment. And that is all by grace. Righteousness means that God now declares a new reality forensically, judgmentally, exists before you and God. Not only does it just declare there's a new reality, it goes beyond that and it transforms and empowers sinners so that they can become exactly what God declares them to be. Let those who name the name of Jesus Christ depart from iniquity. So if we are declared saints, we are to live as saints. If we are declared righteous, we are to live as righteous and godly people. And that's what righteousness does. But this righteousness is apart from the law. The law has nothing to do with it. Although, ironically, it's being revealed in the law and the prophets. Now that is a word or phrase that means the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets. There were three divisions, or sometimes they used two divisions. The law, first five books, the Pentateuch, and the rest was called the prophets. Or there was a third portion of the Old Testament, the Psalms. And sometimes they just said the Psalms were part of the prophets. And that's the way Paul is using this here. So this righteousness apart from the law, without any works, without any merit, without any good doing on our behalf, it's always been demonstrated in the Old Testament Torah. This forensic declaring and infusing you with the righteousness of God so that you can live a righteous life. It's always been that way. And it started all the way back in Genesis, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was put to his credit. Psalm 32, David says this, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is Covered, that word covered in the Septuagint translation is the word propitiation. In fact, the covering of the ark in the Septuagint, Greek Testament, Greek Old Testament, there's really not a Greek Old Testament, but the Greeks couldn't speak, the Hebrews stopped speaking their own language because of the dispersion and because of Hellenism. So they translated into a Greek translation. And it helps us understand the Hebrew idea of those words because it's in Greek. But the word for the covering of the mercy seat was the propitiation. So that helps us understand what propitiation is. And Paul, I mean, David says his sins have been propitiated. They have been covered. The mercy seat. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like thee? who pardons iniquity, who passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Who's a God like that? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. 
He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Again, the prophet predicts there's a time coming where we will all live under the, the dispensation of grace and faith. He says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Now, what is the means that God does this? The means is simple, isn't it? It's apart from the law. It's been witnessed by the law. Even the righteousness of God, and here's the preposition, the means that it's acquired is faith. And what is the object of the faith? It's in Christ Jesus. And who is it for? It's to all. All who do what? All who believe. And there is no distinction. Paul has been running this parallel of the Jew and the Gentile that both are under sin. Both have the law, either the Torah or they have a conscience. And there's no distinction. There's no partiality with God. God's plan of justification then was set forth in Christ. Verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned. Notice that's a past tense. It's an heiress in the original language, and that's not important for you to remember any of that, but the heiress is a unique way of saying something as a whole, completed, finished product. So all have sinned. The idea is that our whole past life has been a pattern of sin, and then falling short is a present tense verb. It keeps on going. We've all, this is our condition and what are we doing constantly? We're constantly not measuring up to God's standard. That's who we are. Then it's linked with a participle. What has God done? Being justified. There's another same word, justified, declared righteous. And then we've got an adjective declaring how, how did that happen? It happened freely. It happened by grace. It happened through redemption. So let's just plummet those ideas a little bit deeper. The word free, being freely justified. It's the word that means literally without any cause. There's no explanation. Jesus used that same word. It's only used about four times in the entire New Testament. There's another word. It's a derivative. of It's, called, it's the word doron, which simply means a gift. So it has the same idea as a gift, but the adjective has the idea of without any effort for absolutely no reason. It could have been translated, you've been justified for nothing on your account. It says in the Gospel of John 15.25, Jesus uses it there and he says, they hated me, and here's the same word, without cause. It's also used in the book of Galatians. If righteousness came by the works of the law, then Jesus Christ died, and it's translated in vain or with no reason. And so that is how you and I have been justified. We have been justified by no reason on our own, but rather by grace. So let's read it together. Being justified freely, and what is the means that participle by? By his grace. So let's really understand what grace is this morning. Grace is the active love of God. That's what grace is. It's God's active love that 
leads him, God, to bestow forgiveness in spite of man's rebellion. That's what grace is. It's God's active love. Grace also is a divine provision. It doesn't just forgive us. Grace also enables us to live the Christian life. It is an enabling power. That's what grace is. God, have you ever heard people saying, well, I I just need the grace to get through this? Well, that's what grace is. It doesn't just forgive us, but it enables us to live through the circumstances of life. Grace is a divine provision for mankind to live in this new relationship that he has with God. Grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5.21. This quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's been like haunting me all week. And I hope it has a similar effect on you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Although grace is free, it is not cheap. It costs God the death of his only begotten son. What has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Costly grace confronts us with the call to relinquish our very lives and submit absolutely to the obedience of Christ. That's what costly grace is all about. Redemption. It's through redemption. That's how we receive this grace. It's free. It's by grace. And it's through the redemption. And that redemption is only found in Christ Jesus. So what does the word redemption mean? It was actually a word that was used in the slave market to purchase a slave out of the market and then to set them free. Redemption, Christ's death was sacrificial and that it brought us out of the slave market of sin in order to set us free to live unto God. God redeemed his people in the Old Testament. He brought them out of harsh bondage and he gave them a promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what redemption looks like. For God's people, their cry went out. He remembered their covenant. And God did for them what they could not do for themselves. That's what it means to be redeemed. The purpose. I love the way Paul writes. It's so specific. The purpose is found in verse 25 and verse 26. The main verb is God set forth. Now, I want you to follow the infinitives in verse 25. Whom God set forth, a propitiation by his blood, through faith. Look at all those participles. But then we come down to the infinitive. It completes the idea of setting forth. It completes that. Set forth what? To demonstrate his righteousness. Jesus was set forth, and the purpose was to demonstrate God's righteousness. God is a righteous judge, and by setting Jesus forth, God is demonstrating all that he demands of you and I that you and I could not do. Romans chapter 8, the law that it was weak in what it could not do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin in the flesh that the righteousness of God might be put into us. God is demonstrating his righteousness 
in Christ. And then in verse 26, it starts out with that another infinitive, the same, same Greek words, to, distra- to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. So we see the purpose, don't we? The purpose is to demonstrate God's righteousness for past sins. God does not just look at our past and say, you know what, that doesn't matter. I don't care how you live. No, he does care. He cares so much that his wrath was on us. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 that we were children of wrath even as others. But God, in his forbearance, was giving you and I time to come to him. He could have judged us and justly condemned us on our first sin, but God doesn't. And the sins of the Old Testament, God wasn't just passing over them as if he was indifferent. In fact, it was just the opposite. God was passing over them because he loved us so much, and he was not indifferent to sin, and he's demonstrated that he was not indifferent to sin, that he let his own son die for people in the Old Testament, and he wasn't indifferent to my sin in my past. He had his own son die for me. So when it says that God passed over sin, it doesn't mean that God was indifferent to it. It means that God was so loving, that God is so patient, that our God is so good, and he gives us time and time and time and time. And even as believers, our God is still conforming us and transforming us into his son. That's our God. So the first purpose was to overlook, not to overlook, but to to give us time, forbearance by God's goodness the only reason we are saved is because God was passing over he wasn't indifferent to sin he wasn't indifferent to our past sin or past generations rather just the opposite God was patient and merciful yet the death of his son demonstrates that God God was in no way just indifferent to it but that God is just and now at the present time the next infinitive to demonstrate the righteousness at this present God's Holy, moral, and forgiving character is completely maintained in vindicating and justifying and acquitting ungodly mankind. God is demonstrating that. That was the purpose. And how did he do it? Let's back up. He did it by his blood, and he did it through faith, because Jesus is the propitiation. And I've already sort of defined propitiation. Propitiation is that covering. It's the expiating of sin. It's to give it a complete forgiveness. Point number two is the result of God's plan of righteousness by faith alone. What are the results? I'm going to quickly give you the three results, and then we'll go over them in just a little bit of depth. The first result of God's righteous plan by faith. The first thing that we see, where's boasting? So the first thing as a result of God's plan of redeeming us, being a propitiation for putting us at a right standing with God, what is the result of it through faith alone? The first one is there's no boasting. The second result is all mankind is treated equally. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the law, for he is one God. He is God also the Jew and also the Gentiles. For uh, yes, the God of the Gentiles also, since there's one God who will justify circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. We are all equal. The third result of justification by faith alone, the third result is it establishes the law. 
it doesn't make it void. Verse 31. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So those three are the results. The first one, elimination is boasting. There's no pride. Receiving a gift is not boast-worthy. In fact, receiving a gift is praiseworthy of the giver alone. Boasting, on the other hand, depends on superiority that's earned by good works, by religious observances. On the other hand, the law of faith. So let's look at that phrase in verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? That word law in this context doesn't mean the written code of law. It has the idea of a general rule or principle by which God acts under. So by what law, what principle? And then he sort of asks that question to help answer that, of works. So is it a principle of merit? Is it a principle of works? Because that's what every other religion teaches. And he says, no, but by the law of faith. So he uses the word law of faith again by a principle, a guiding principle that God has always Used. It's always been this law of faith, a principle of trusting another, depending totally on the merciful act of God. Believing does not merit or make God somehow obligated to forgive you and I. It is totally, totally God's free decision in His sovereignty to choose to forgive sinners. We don't earn it. It treats all people as equal. There is one God and there's only one plan treating all people equally lost and yet grace has forgiven us and given us equal access. What a wonderful message to hatred, to prejudice, to pride, to arrogance. We are all in the same boat. There's none of us in the church here today that ever had a head start or a leg up or a better standing with God before we got saved. And none of us have one after we are saved. There is equality in Christianity. And then lastly, the result is that it establishes God's moral law and the purpose for the law. In Galatians chapter 3, and verse 10 and following, it says, For many, for as many as are of works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And the law is not a faith, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So when Paul says the law establishes faith, what is he saying? He said it's confined us all under sin. And it's established the fact that we need Jesus alone. It doesn't make it void. 
It shows us and it underscores the importance that God's perfection under the law is impossible. Keeping its obligations are never going to be met. So to conclude Paul's argument, all men are guilty for suppressing truth. All that we know about God is evident through creation and through conscience. God's judgment of sinners is completely impartial. It is completely just because it's not based on who you are. It's based on what we have done. It's based on God's revelation and not our feelings. It's based on our conscience knowing right and wrong, which will accuse us. It's based on our deeds, and it's based on the secrets of our heart. Thirdly, mankind is hopelessly lost by trying to keep both the letter of the law, but especially the spirit of the law. There is no way. So what does faith demonstrate? Faith demonstrates to us that righteousness has nothing to do with the law. It demonstrates to you and I that it's always been portrayed in the Old Testament by faith alone and that it is the only means that God will merit righteousness to us. The whole experience of mankind is summed up in his past as a sinner and presently we are falling short of the glory of God justification is free it's nothing we do it is by grace or God's active love such a great grace compels you and I to live absolutely under the submission and the obedience of Jesus it is redemption through someone else's sacrifice who purchased us out of slavery and brought us unto freedom the purpose of God's righteousness is to demonstrate that God was so long-suffering in the Old Testament. God was so long-suffering with our past. And it demonstrates the present righteousness of God, that God is both a just God and that God is a justifier of those who sin. God is completely vindicated in his decision to treat us as acquitted and clear of all guilt. So this is what God has given us And this is the message that I hope will just resonate in our hearts this week. That God has done everything to provide salvation. And all we need to do is by faith trust what God has done. We don't have time to go in this morning what real faith looks like. But faith to me can be demonstrated by the rich young ruler. And I'm going to conclude this. It wasn't that Jesus wanted that man to give up his wealth. He wanted that man to come and acknowledge that he needed Christ. When Zacchaeus gave up half of his goods that he stole and the other part to pay back what he's taken by extradition, Jesus didn't say that was required of you, Nicodemus or Zacchaeus. But he said, today salvation has come to this house. So faith really is taking the idol of your heart and saying, I am going to displace this idol of my heart 
And I am going to trust Jesus for everything that I think this idol could do for me. That's believing faith. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is faith that I know that Jesus Christ, if I have Christ, and I believe him and I trust him, if I have Jesus alone, I have everything that I will ever want or ever need. You know, this week, I I had a, a real minor trial. I won't go into any details, but my wife, she likes to scare me. No, not really. But um, she was she was looking at some things on my on my skin that are ugly, and um, she says you got to have those checked out. And and then I proceeded to tell her. I says you know where my glands are. I'm I'm in I'm in pain and it really really hurts. And she says well, when did that start? She says you know that's a sign when when those glands there's something going on wrong with you. And I'm thinking, well, man, if it's already gone that far, what's the Bible? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and I really wasn't alarmed. But for just, a, I didn't tell her this. I didn't tell anybody this. But just for a moment, I said, what if? What if? Jordan, who was baptized about three weeks ago, he went in to surgery with a brain tumor the size of a golf ball. It was, I think he said, three millimeters, something like that, from the main blood supply of his brain. And he was just becoming introduced to who Jesus was. And he had to ask himself before that surgery, when he went under the anesthesia and the doctors told him, you might not wake up. If there was just a slight nick, there's nothing we can do. That's faith. When you say, Jesus, I know that you have me. I don't see you. I don't understand all of this, but I believe Jesus Christ. I am trusting him alone. My idols they're, they're, they're nothing. They don't have ears. They don't have mouth. They don't have feet. They don't have the ability to give me joy in my heart. But God, you've done it by grace. You've done it through a means of redemption. You have made Jesus my perfect propitiation, my perfect sacrifice. I cannot do it. I confess to you that I need you, Lord. And you know, that's not just the way we're saved, is it? That's the way God intends us to live the Christian life. And that's almost just as hard as being saved that way. (laughs) Believe me, we often revert back to, I'm just going to power through this. I've got this. Let's pause in prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, God, how these ancient truths that were witnessed all the way back in Genesis, proclaimed by the poets of the Psalms, proclaimed by the, the prophets of Israel, that the just shall live by faith alone 
in Jesus alone, by your gracious plan that imputes us with total acquittal and righteousness, gives us grace to live every day in the Christian life, and looks at us as if our sins have been atoned for, expiated, covered over completely, hid in the depths of the sea. Oh, how great salvation that we have. In Jesus' name, we thank you and praise you.